failure. We don't like to talk that much about failure very often, do we? We don't really even like to think about it that often. And we kind of live in a culture, right, that sometimes tries to soften or ignore failure. We don't keep score at kids' events sometimes, right? Except my kids did. They would go, Dad, I think we won 4-2 to two when they were playing soccer. So the adults weren't doing it, but the kids were. Supposed to just have fun. And my son's first year of football, when he was in fourth grade, he said, Dad, we lost every game. That wasn't fun, <laughs> you know? So we have these kinds of ideas in our culture. Uh, in fact, one of the things, I just read an article recently, one of the most prestigious colleges and universities in the whole country there's a movement now to say no grades at all, no failing, no A's, that everybody would just have the same grade and they would all get through and nobody would fail. A few years ago, maybe you were following this business that tried that model where they were going to pay everybody exactly the same no matter what their job was and no matter how productive they were or how well they did at their job. And so nobody could fail. Everybody would just be at the same, except eventually people started going, hey, I think I'm doing more work than that person, and it doesn't seem fair. In fact, we're almost taught, and we've been taught in the last maybe 20 years, that you can do whatever you put your mind to, right? You've heard that, right? Implying that there's no chance for failure. <laughs> if you just put your mind to it, you work really hard every time you're going to succeed. You know, I, I watched the NFL and... Some of you know that I'm a football lover, and I loved football when I was a kid. And I watch the NFL, and I'll see that guy. They'll say, yeah, you know, you can just do whatever you want to. If you put your mind to it, work really hard. And I think, man, when I was in high school, I put my mind to it, and I worked really hard. <laughs> and I didn't get to go to the NFL, you know. Um, stuff, sometimes we don't always succeed, and sometimes failure occurs. And that's what's crazy, right? We kind of have this culture that says all this stuff about trying to ignore failure, and yet we've all experienced failure. That's what really kind of boggled my mind as I was preparing this message this week, where we have this culture that kind of wants to kind of uh, make us feel safe from failure, yet every one of us have experienced it to some degree or another. And every one of us have seen it happen to somebody else. Failure occurs. Now, here's the thing. We're going to review what we saw in the Old Testament where we saw a lot of human failure. But I want to remind you that God was at work to be sure, and God didn't fail, but his people did fail. Adam and Eve failed and left us all a big mess. Abraham failed. Moses failed. David failed. And ultimately, if you've been with us through the thread, you'll remember this theme that we see throughout, that ultimately Israel failed. They were supposed to be God's people, God's represent, representatives on the earth, and they failed. And that leads us to why we chose this passage. You might be wondering, if we had one passage in Matthew, why did we choose this passage? Now think back to two weeks ago, we had a snowstorm, right, that canceled church. But what we were going to do is this passage to show us that the thread moving through the Old Testament where we see all this failure on the human side and we see Israel fail, now we're going to turn the page and we're going to see the one who will never fail. We're going to see Jesus who doesn't fail. Where all others have failed, Jesus will not fail. And while we're going to learn some things in this passage about temptation and how to deal with it, it's not the primary part of the passage. While it is an important piece, we're going to learn some things. What we're going to see and, and see as even more important is the truth that Jesus himself will never fail. Listen to what this one commentator said. 
Jesus did not need to be tempted to help him grow. Instead, listen, he endured temptation both so that he could identify with us and to demonstrate his own holy, sinless character. Those are the two themes I want you to see throughout this message. The reason Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted is both to identify with us and so that we know that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way that we were, but also to show us that he is holy and sinless, and that's going to have some massive implications for us. That's going to be the most important part of Jesus' life is that he will live it sinlessly, that he will come down and do the will of the Father perfectly, and that's got huge implications for us. So what we're going to see is that this was a period of forced dependence upon God the Father, where Jesus is going to be obedient to his will all the time. Hebrews 5.8 tells us he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. While he was suffering, his temptation was to go, why should I do this? I could just go back up to heaven. And so Jesus' life was this massive pressure of trying to be perfect. And anybody ever felt that pressure? of trying to live perfectly, but we can't do it because we had a sinful nature. Now this one who's fully God and fully man in the flesh is going to live out his life with all that pressure to fail and to sin and will do it perfectly. Um, we're not going to get to this today, but one of my favorite places of Jesus' temptation is way past Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is sweating drops of blood. He is being tempted to say, I don't want to do this. And he said, if we could do it another way, God, can we do it another way? And God said, no, it's the only way. One of my favorite scenes is when Jesus is arrested, and we'll see this at Easter time. And they walk up, and they say, who are you looking for? And he said, that's me. And he just gives himself over, and Peter pulls out a sword, right, and cuts off a guy's ear. And then what happens is Jesus said, don't you think I could call legions of angels down and stop this right now? What a massive place of temptation where Jesus is standing there, this crowd of human beings are going to take him and brutalize him and crucify him. And he looks up to heaven and he sees myriads of angels around him. And he says, just stay there, guys. Don't come. Just stay there. I'm going to go through with this. The temptation that Jesus faces throughout his entire life to fail and to not be obedient to the will of the Father. And we see it shown to us right here in Matthew 4 where Israel and all of the people before had failed. Jesus is not going to fail. So let's, let's dig into it and see what we can learn both about the two sides of this. What we can learn about when we're tempted and what we can learn and the implications of what it means that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet was without sin. So here's how it starts. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I love that part. At the end, yeah, 40 days, 40 nights, you're probably going to be hungry. He's a real human being. He wasn't cheating and turning things into, you know, bread while he was out there or somehow doing something magical to make his stomach feel full. He was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And here's what's really interesting, you guys. If you have your Bibles open, if you flip back just a page, you're going to see that this is coming right after Jesus' baptism where the Holy Spirit comes upon him and says, and the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. And that same Holy Spirit that descended like a dove is now going to take him into the wilderness. That's kind of a significant thing. This high of being baptized and the Father speaking to everyone that was there that this is his beloved son. And now that beloved son by the same spirit is being led off into the wilderness to be tempted. 
tempted and tested. It's the beginning of this time of tempting and testing. Now, Matthew, this is kind of important, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And as soon as his Jewish audience heard this, when they heard wilderness and they heard 40 days and they heard hungry, their minds jumped back to Israel's history. And their mind jumps back to when Israel was was freed from slavery from Egypt. And for 40 years, they wandered into the, in the wilderness and were tested. And so they see this right away. Wilderness and 40 and testing, and it combines. And they remember Deuteronomy chapter 8 that says this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you'll keep his commandments. And he humbled you and let you hunger. That's Deuteronomy 8, and they are thinking that when they see what Matthew says here in Matthew chapter 4. That the equation here, what Israel went through, wandering in the desert, 40 years, they were hungry. Jesus, now in the wilderness, 40 days, and he's hungry. And in fact, they're going to be reminded about how they were hungry in the desert and how God provided for them. Exodus 16, 35 The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land, a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So now they're hearing all this and they're seeing what's happening with Jesus and they remember all of this that has happened in the Old Testament. And hopefully we are remembering some of it too from the thread. And so there there he is out in the wilderness, 40 days, he's hungry, and now this happens, verse 3. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Now remember, this is Satan, and he knows exactly who Jesus is. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He goes right back to that Deuteronomy passage as well. And let me read it, verse three, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. And you did, not, you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you known that the man does not live by bread alone. That's what he's saying. Man does not live by bread alone. That comes from Deuteronomy 8 when they're wandering in the wilderness. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the tempter comes. And what he's essentially doing is he's tempting him to use his supernatural power to do what his will is, not what God's will is. Now, this is important. If you lost me, come on back because this is kind of a, a key piece to the entire New Testament. What Jesus is going to do is going to do nothing but the will of the Father. Now, what gets confusing for us sometimes is we'll look at a passage like this, and at the end of the passage, the angels are going to come and supernaturally tend to him. And there's other places where we're going to see him use his supernatural power to feed 5,000 and to feed 4,000. And so we could be tempted to go, well, it's not wrong for him to use his supernatural power to, to feed himself. Why was this such a big deal? What is wrong is whenever Jesus, if Jesus were to do something other than what God's will was. So it wasn't about using his power because we're going to see him use his power in a lot of different ways. It was about using his power in ways that were other than the will of the Father. And so that's what Satan's going to tempt him to do, is to do his own thing. Same temptation you and I have, to do our own thing, to do our will, not God's will. That's what Jesus was tempted to do. He could have just done what he wanted to do. He had the power to do it, but he doesn't do it. 
And his temptation here is to use his power to do something supernatural, which wasn't what God's will was. God's will was for him to be tested and tried. Now, there's a whole sermon there that I won't go into because some of you are saying, I don't like it when that's God's will for my life, is to be tested and tried. But Jesus is being tested in the wilderness. And one of the things he's being tested with is just the physical need to eat. And he's being tempted to use his supernatural power outside of the will of God to meet his own needs. It was a temptation to use his sonship in a way that was inconsistent with what God's mission was for him. And here's what's interesting. While Israel never faithfully submitted to God's will, the Messiah is going to faithfully submit to God's word and will, and he's going to do it perfectly. You see the tie-in, why I'm trying to tie this in with the Old Testament? Where they failed, this one, this Messiah, is going to faithfully submit to God's word. He's going to submit to God's will. He's going to always do it perfectly. And we're also reminded in this little verse here that there's supernatural nourishment that comes from the mouth of God. If you're looking for strength and nourishment spiritually right now, you're going to find it in God's word. You're going to find it from the mouth of God. There is spiritual nourishment in the bread of life, and that's God's word. And when you go into his word, you're going to find things that you need. And it's just a beautiful picture here that he's finding spiritual nourishment, and, and God's reminding him, you're not going to find it just by having more bread. You're going to find nourishment, spiritual nourishment, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so be careful for our temptation, right? Our temptation is if I have all my physical needs met, if I got a nice car, nice house, nice bank account, then all of life is going to be good. It's going to be okay. And Jesus says, man, that's not where you're going to find it at. You're going to find nourishment from the word of God, from the mouth of God. And so that's where Jesus goes in his time of need. He goes to the word of God. Then we get to verse 5. The next thing that happens, the devil took him to the holy city and he set him up in the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's saying, listen, why don't you just jump off of here. Everybody's going to see it. And the angels are going to catch you. And everybody's going to go, oh, the Messiah is here. <laughs> and the devil is trying to use his mission, the mission that Jesus has, and trying to kind of convince him to do it again his own way instead of God's way. And so he sets him up at the pinnacle of a temple. It's like 200 feet high, and it's going to be pretty dramatic if he jumps off of there, and people are going to see it. And he says, if you're the son of God, just, just do this. And then all of a sudden, everybody's going to flock to you and going to force the father to jump in there and catch him. That's what Satan was thinking. You know, he's going to jump, and then all of a sudden, God's going to have to intervene and send angels. And so Satan is appealing to the desire within a human being, which Jesus is fully man, right, and fully God, this, he's appealing to their desire for approval and their desire to, to kind of make a public splash. I think, I think uh, we could get this a little bit in our culture today because everybody's looking to get attention somehow, right? And you would think if, if Jesus had come to earth today, we might not, the temptation might not have been to go to the temple and on the pinnacle, it might be, why don't you do something on TikTok, you know? Why don't you do something spectacular on social media? Why don't you do something that the whole world can see? Can you imagine that kind of a temptation? Doing something that so the whole world can see that you're Jesus, you're the Messiah. That's essentially what he was tempting him to do. 
you know, one of the things that's really kind of crazy about what Satan is asking them to do, one of the things we're going to see later in the Gospels is that Jesus is going to do some spectacular, spectacular miracles. He's going to raise people from the dead. 38-year-old invalid is going to stand up and walk. Man blind from birth is going to see. And still half the people are going to say, this is from the devil. Half the people are going to say, you're not real. It's so crazy. We think that the spectacular things, if Jesus would just come and do great miracles, everybody would flock to him. Well, he did come and do great miracles, and not everybody flocked to him. So what Satan is inviting him to do, Jesus knows that's not the way. Great spectacular miracles aren't going to draw everybody to me. Because we still have hearts that want to do our own thing. And so the second temptation, it's real. But Jesus is, is saying that's not going to happen. He uses the word of God and says, you shouldn't put me to the test. And then the final temptation is the most egregious of all. It's one that we think is probably not that big of a deal, but I want you to see how big of a deal it is as we go through it. The third temptation is in verse 8. And it says, the devil took him to very, a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Tempting him with a so-called shortcut to rule over the whole world and to reign over the physical world that was in existence at the time. Now, why this is so egregious and why this was the most serious one of all, I just want you to pause for a moment and picture what would have happened. This was a real temptation. All these temptations were real. Jesus resisted them all. What if he had not? Picture what would have happened had he done what Satan said. Now Satan and Jesus in rebellion towards God the Father. All of the universe destroyed. What really struck me this last couple weeks as I was putting this message together, you guys, was the seriousness of Jesus coming to earth. The seriousness of the temptations that he faced. Because if he had failed, it's hard for us to even imagine what would have happened. Sending Jesus to live as a human... The survival of all of the universe hinging on his obedience to the will of the Father. He holds all things together, it says in Colossians. One, one, just one, even one thought. Because in Matthew we see that even our thoughts can be sinful. Even one thought of disobedience on his part. It was all over. Now, we can't really speculate on exactly what would have happened if Jesus failed, but I can do this, and I invite you to do this. We should praise him and worship him with grateful hearts that he did not fail. Do you see the significance of this? While his failure would have been doomed for all of us, I don't know exactly what would have happened if he failed, but I'm sure glad that he didn't, and I just want to praise him for it. I want to worship him with a grateful heart that he endured it all, so that he did not fail and we could be the recipients of his victory. The stakes are unimaginably high in this passage that we're very familiar with. A passage that maybe we've read before and haven't stopped to think just how high the stakes really are. 
And it's a beautiful thing to watch what Jesus does. He's not compromising with Satan in any way. He's not going to even enter into a dialogue about him. He just simply says, you just asked me to do the most egregious thing in the entire universe to worship something other than the true and living God. And he says, I rebuke you, Satan, be gone. I'm done with you. (laughs) I'm not having any more conversation. You're asking me to worship someone other than the living God. I'm not having it. You're asking me to serve someone other than the Lord God. You know what, though? As much as that sounds, how dramatic that might have just sounded, that was the persistent sin of Israel. The persistent sin of Israel in the Old Testament was worshiping something and someone other than the true and living God. The violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. The struggle I had in the last couple of weeks, I'm saying last couple because I did this message back before the snowstorm and worked on it more this week. The struggle I had with this is sometimes that's me. Sometimes I have things that I don't think I'm worshiping, but guess what? They are more important and higher than the true and living God. And sometimes I find myself in this place where I'm like, yikes, is that me? Am I worshiping someone or something other than the true and living God? Am I focusing on something other than the true and living God and I'm violating the first commandment? That was the persistent sin of Israel. It's the persistent temptation of our hearts. And Jesus is the one who stands there and shows us how to address it and deals with it perfectly. And he looks at Satan and says, Satan, no way. This is, this is an unbelievable thing you're asking me to do. Can you picture it? Just, just use your imagination for a moment. He's asking Jesus to worship him. And Jesus is just like, that's it. I just want to invite you that sometimes the enemy is asking us to worship things. And one of the ways maybe we could handle it is say, nope, <laughs> I rebuke you, Satan. That is not right and true. Now, what we're going to see is we're going to need help from someone to do that, and Jesus is going to be the one that helps us. But after that last temptation, that last encounter where Jesus rebukes him and he says, away from me, Satan, the devil left him, and now the angels come and they minister to him. He does use supernatural divine power to, to be ministered to, but it was the will of the Father at that moment. And so he never, ever goes against the will of the Father. And that God divinely ministers to Jesus through these ministering angels that come and meet him there. Forty days, a human being, he's tired, he's hungry. Satan waits for him to be at his weakest, to give him his strongest temptation. Jesus, relying on the same spirit that drove him into the wilderness, through that spirit, rebukes Satan. And now God comes and ministers to him. Beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. But Jesus isn't done yet, right? This is just the start of his ministry. And so he has done the will of the Father. And now we're going to watch him continue to do the will of the Father. And now we're going to get the good news and why it's so important that Jesus was perfect. So if kind of lost me in some of this, come on back now because here's the punchline, all right? Here's the stuff that is really, really going to, I think, be important to help us see why this even matters. And so what happens next 
after he's been tempted and the angels come and minister to him, John the Baptist gets, gets arrested. And so Jesus says, the political things are a little hot right now. I think I'm going to move. And this is what verse 12 says. Now when he heard that John had been um, arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. But I want you to look down at the bottom in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Gal Galilee of the Gentiles, all these places that were talked about in the Old Testament are now the focus of where Jesus is at. And what I want you to just to hear is in the territories, there were people living there, okay? Just something really basic. He left Nazareth, he went into Capernaum, Zebulun, all these places, and the people were living there, okay? Now this is what happens, verse 16. Something we can just read by so fast. The people were dwelling in darkness. And they've now seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, verse 16, on them a light has dawned. 400 years. Now, if you haven't been with us in the, in the thread, this is an important piece. After the last book of the Old Testament, there's been 400 years where God has been silent. No prophets, nobody speaking his, his word, nobody being the voice of God. And 400 years of silence. And they're living in darkness. And they're living in the land of the dead. And no prophet speaking. And they're living in that condition. And now in the shadow of death. It's trying to give us a picture. This is a really seriously dark place. Physical and spiritual. A, a, a physically and spiritually deadly situation. It is a dark place. Think about how you think of places that are really, really in trouble today. With lots of heartache and lots of things and sorrow and a lot of people hurting one another and this is what's happening in this place and now all of a sudden God shows up on the scene and he's speaking again and a great light has dawned. Do you see the picture? All of a sudden Jesus steps on the scene and he's gone through this temptation and now he's going to preach and he's going to start his preaching ministry in a land that is dark in the shadow of death silent for 400 years, hadn't heard God speak, and now Jesus comes right into the midst of that, and look what he says in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to, re to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light shows up and preaches a message that might kind of surprise us, because he says the way out of darkness, the way out of the shadow of death, is to heed the message that the light has dawned and to repent and to turn from sin and follow the reign of God. He doesn't say, here's the message, you know, Jesus is just your buddy and he's your good friend and he loves you and just, you know, add him on to the rest of the things of your life and when you need him, tap into him. No, in the darkness, in the shadow of death, he comes and says, turn from all of that, turn from sin and follow the rule and the reign of God. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we've got two pieces here. The present reality of the reign of God. And the future and final, final rule of the reign of God. The present reality is breaking in. And now sin is going to start to be addressed. And now the spirit of God is going to start and work in people's lives. But then one day it's going to be finished when Jesus returns. But it's all dawned. And it's it's time to turn and follow the light. And Jesus says, he's the light of the world. Now, if you don't remember anything that I say today, I hope you remember this. Jesus is inviting us to turn and to follow him because he's offering abundant life and eternal life. 
Those are the two things that Jesus offers. And so people living in darkness and the shadow of death, he's coming along, I got two things for you. I got a better life now, abundant life, and I'm offering you eternal life. And the beauty of this picture is, in all the ways that Israel fails to be the people of God, Jesus succeeds. And he does so not just for Israel, but for you and me. And he brings this beautiful message of freedom and deliverance from darkness. And just again, think of that picture, living in the shadow of death. He says, I got something different for you. Listen to what he's got for you. I've got freedom. I've got forgiveness. I've got redemption. I've got the light. I'm going to turn the light on so you can actually see. And this is what you're going to get to see. That Jesus is the one. He is the one who's going to come to earth and offer us. Offer forgiveness. Isn't that a beautiful thing to offer somebody? Offer us redemption. Jesus said, guess what, man? You're a mess over here. You're living in the shadow of death. I'm going to redeem you from that. You've got your attitudes and actions over here. I'm going to forgive you for that. It's just a beautiful picture that living in the land of darkness and the shadow of death, now Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is going to be the answer. And Jesus is going to do what all the Old Testament characters couldn't do. Now, he's going to do two things. And here's what I uh, wanted to kind of leave you with today. Here's my application. It's kind of different than I normally do. This is an interesting passage because there's a theological application and then there's a practical application. Most of the time these are kind of together, but I'm going to separate them today so that you can see the importance of Jesus living a perfect life. And if you've lost me, come on back because I'm wrapping up now. The, The importance of living a perfect life and what we can learn from it as we deal with temptation. So the first piece, I'm calling it the theological application the perfection of Jesus, why it was so important for Jesus to be perfect and to live perfectly as a human. And now for those of you who've been with us throughout the thread, maybe you can connect to some of the things we've talked about in the Old Testament. First, Jesus is the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if you've been with us in the thread way back into Leviticus, we need a atoning sacrifice for our sins and Jesus is the perfect atoning sacrifice. They had to do it over and over, every year, over and over. Jesus just had to do it once. Jesus is the perfect high priest, so he can intercede for us with God. And if you follow the Old Testament, the idea of the high priest was one who spoke for God, but he had to sacrifice for himself before he could meet with God. And Jesus, sacrifice once for all, doesn't need to do that. He can now intercede with, with God as the great and perfect high priest. Remember those prophets that we would see? Jesus is the perfect prophet. So every word he speaks are true and authoritative and from the mouth of God. This is why his perfect life was so important. He's the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the perfect high priest who can intercede and go right into the presence of God face to face. He's the perfect prophet, so everything he speaks is going to be true and authoritative and from the mouth of God. And then he's the perfect king. His kingdom will rule and reign, and it will be a rule of righteousness and justice for all of eternity. 
Jesus is the perfect king. He's the perfect, all of those things that we saw in the Old Testament that all of those people were not. It's a beautiful picture. I hope you'll grab onto it today. Atoning sacrifice, perfect high priest, perfect prophet, perfect king. And then we do learn some things about how to handle the tempter when he comes and attempts us. So I'm calling this the living it out application. As we're trying to follow Jesus, now if I have put my faith in all of those things on the theological part, that he is all of those things, now I'm trying to follow him, and Satan's going to come and tempt me as well. Did I learn anything from this passage that could be helpful? The first thing is that we can trust Jesus as a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted. So when I go to Jesus, I don't have to go, you don't really understand this. I go to Jesus, you get exactly what I'm going through. And so I'm coming to you instead of trying to figure this out by myself. So we can trust that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest and he knows what it's like to be tempted. Second, he gives us the perfect example about how to resist temptation. He shows us how to do it. He did it with these three things. One is rely on the word of God. I know that this is a temptation because it's contrary to the Word of God. And so i got to go to the Word of God to find out what God wants me to do. And so Jesus relies on the Word of God. He relied on the Spirit of God. i got the Spirit of the living God in me. And he can help me. And that's one of the beautiful things is that the Spirit now helps me when I'm tempted. And then he relied on the power of God. He said, I rebuke you, Satan. So Jesus shows us how to resist it by being in the word, by relying on the power of the spirit, and by relying on the power of God to rebuke Satan and not listen and enter into dialogue. Listen, we can be encouraged that the same Holy Spirit that allowed him to resist and empowered him to resist now dwells in us so that we can resist. That same spirit that was helping Jesus at that time, the third member of the Trinity, is the same spirit that's helping you and me third member of the trinity now the bible says lives in me crazy stuff amazing stuff helps me both to believe the theological application of today and it can also help me to live out the living application of today listen i always say i'm a preacher of good news can't give you better news than this that there was one who lived perfectly he was fully god and fully man came on the earth so that he could die on the cross and be a perfect sacrifice in my place so that all of my sin can get placed on him and all of his righteousness can get placed in me. And all that happens just by faith, just by believing, putting my faith in him. So I wanted to close this morning um, with just something a little bit different. And I'm going to invite you um, to, to read with me uh, out loud um, just a couple of verses of scripture that I think from Hebrews and maybe you want to write this down and look at this this week, pulls this whole concept together, has both of these things, the perfection of Jesus and our ability and our need to rely on Jesus. Um, both of these things are capsulized in this. So let's read this together. Would you join me? Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.